0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. You know, I was talking to someone many, many, many years ago, and he shared this illustration I'll never forget. He said that we as human beings are like tubes of toothpaste. And he was speaking in reference to this teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus is talking about um, uh, good fruit and bad fruit. And at the end of this little uh, teaching, Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or the NIV puts it this way, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And, and my friend said, we are like tubes of toothpaste in that when we are squeezed in life, whatever is on the inside comes out and we can't control it. And you can't put it back in when it comes out. And man, I did not like that illustration at all. It was convicting. I'm a verbal processor. I'm a guy who wears my feelings on my sleeve. I don't have a big capacity to stuff what I'm feeling. It comes out real time. Oftentimes in my life, when I'm squeezed the most, under the most pressure, when I'm experiencing the highest levels of stress, I really don't like what comes out of my mouth. And my family could tell you that there has been more than one occasion where my words have wounded those I love. More than once I've looked at the aftermath of the squeezing, the the mess all over my home, and my heart has been sickened by what was within me. You know, the heart is a tricky thing, isn't it? The heart is a tricky thing. We talk about our hearts often. It's a part of our cultural language. We, we talk about our hearts, and when we talk about our hearts in general, I think most of us would agree, when we mention our heart, we're kind of talking about the moral center of our being, the emotional center of our being. It's kind of the essence of who we are resides in our heart. It's the, the desires that compel us sort of flow from our heart. Uh, we tend to think of the heart as the centerpiece of our personhood, and this language has permeated the way that we talk. Think about it. When someone's looking for advice, and we tend to offer advice, one of the things that we are very fond of saying in our culture is, hey, just follow your heart. What's your heart telling you to do? When someone's passionate about something, they say that their heart is in it. When someone is dispassionate about something or burnt out or weary, they say, man, my heart is no longer in this. When someone's overwhelmed with joy, they say their heart is full. When someone is devastated and grief-stricken, they're heartbroken or they're heartsick. When someone is sympathetic of someone else's suffering, they can say, my heart hurts for you. When someone is in a quest for fulfillment, they are searching for their heart's desire. When someone makes an oath and they want other people to trust their words, they say, cross my heart. When someone is in love and they're committing their love to another in a very poetic say, they'll say, I give you my heart. In the New Testament, the word heart is used over 150 times. And when it's used, it's used in reference to kind of the center of our being. The seat of the physical and spiritual life, the very center of who we are as human beings resides in the heart. And so for those of us gathered today, the center of who you are, the essence of who you are physically and emotionally and spiritually and relationally and morally is in your heart. Your heart defines your personhood. And so the fundamental question the world struggles with and has been struggling with for years and years concerning the heart is simply this. Is the human heart fundamentally good, or is the human heart fundamentally evil? Are people inherently good or inherently bad? That's the question. And I think about that in reference to myself, and I would encourage you in this moment to kind of just think about your own heart, the center of your being, the moral and spiritual center of who you are, the essence of who you are. And as you think about the depths of your heart, your ambitions, your motives, your thoughts, all the things that exist in your private world, how would you answer the question, is the human heart fundamentally good or fundamentally evil? In our text today, Jesus exposes the heart for what it is. I encourage you to turn to Mark rather, chapter 7. We're going to be in the first 23 verses today. Here in the first half of Mark's gospel, there's kind of one main question the text is answering. It's telling us who is Jesus. And it's kind of interesting, in this, in this uh, in this interaction we're going to see in our text today, it's, it's as if the text is kind of saying, no, actually, we know who Jesus is now, but in this little section, Jesus is answering the question, who are the Pharisees? And by proxy, as we look at us now, he's answering the question, who, who are we? If the heart is the center of our being and Jesus is teaching about the heart, he tells us who we are as well. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, we have seen these interactions, these controversies between Jesus and the religious authority, these Pharisees. And these controversies or these conflicts have centered around three areas, sin, uh, uh, sinners, and the Sabbath. So Jesus says he came to forgive sin, and the Pharisees hated that he said that because only God can forgive sin, and so they plotted to kill him, and they called him a blasphemer. Uh, When it comes to, to sinners, Jesus hung out with them He broke bread with them, and it drove the religious folks crazy. And then when it comes to the Sabbath, Jesus is pressing up against these man-made rules about what the Sabbath contains, and and he undoes all the traditions of the Pharisees, and so they criticize Jesus for it. And so we see this controversy in our text, Mark 7, verses 1 through 23, about this tension between tradition and the truth. In one of the centerpiece verses we're going to read here in a second, in verse 8, Jesus says to the Pharisees, I leave you, the, you leave rather, the command of God and hold to the traditions of men. What, a, what an indictment on those, on those Pharisees. So in order to keep the tradition of men, Pharisees were quite literally abandoning the very fundamental commandments of God. It causes us to ask a question as we study this text. What is Christianity? Is Christianity a set of rules or traditions or observations that deal with the external things of life? Or is the Christian faith a heart religion that touches and changes and transforms people at the deepest realm of their being? I think you know the answer. And this is the real issue here between Jesus and the Pharisees. It wasn't simply a discussion about the validity of church tradition. Jesus was really talking about what is the heart concern of God for humankind. God is chiefly not concerned with external piety. He's not concerned with religious observance, or as one pastor put it, he is not so concerned with religious externalism. God is concerned with heart transformation. And Jesus reveals his concern uh, for God, the concern of God for the heart of man. So let's read the first five verses here of chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Let's pause there in verse 5. First thing I want you to write down that we're going to unpack is simply this The Pharisees see a problem with defiled hands. The Pharisees see a problem with defiled hands. And so as we think of the Pharisees, I know that if you've been a student of the Bible, if you read the Gospels, we know full well that the Pharisees are kind of the arch nemesis of Jesus. They're constantly going at one another. But what is the history of these men? How did the Pharisees become the Pharisees? What is the backstory? What is the prequel to this scene that we read here in Mark chapter 7? How did this group of men become who they were? How did they find themselves on the wrong side of history, opposing God in the flesh? A little history here. The word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word that means separated. This was a group of men who fancied themselves exclusively religious. They were separatists. They were above. They were a, a more holier, more pious version of Judaism. The Pharisee movement started around 165, 160 B.C. after the Maccabean Revolt. The Pharisees would contend that there was a spiritual dullness among the the Jews and so the Pharisee movement sprang in their mind as a revivalist movement that was going to bring back uh, seriousness as it pertains to the law of God. It was a religious movement that was trying to elevate the spirituality of the people of God and they believed that the law of God came really kind of in a two-fold way. There was the written law which is what every Jew believes. The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, this was the law of God. But Pharisees had this oral tradition that they believed was like the second aspect of the law of God. There was the written law and there was what they called the oral law or they even called it the second Torah. It was such a uh, belief that they, they, they took teachings of the, of the prophets and the history of the Jewish people and they created this oral tradition adding on works and laws to the law of God. And that's what they really stood for. In their mind, this was elevating piety. It was making the people of God more spiritual, more religious. It was about 200 AD, the second part, or the the, the end of the second century, that they finally would take this oral tradition and they would write it down. And that's known as the Mishnah. The basic idea behind the Mishnah is simply this. If the written law of God is good, and if it's to be followed, well, then we must create a fence around the law to ensure its observance, the Mishnah claims of itself, "quote tradition is a fence around the law." In other words, tradition, as the Jews saw it, protected God's holy word and assisted His people in keeping it. So last summer, me and Pastor Jeremy and Pastor Aaron and Pastor Sam from Philippi, we were blessed enough to go to to uh, down to California and hike in Yosemite. And uh, the first day we were hiking, we came to this well-known point. I can't remember the name of the point. And there's probably a two or 3,000 foot ver- uh, vertical cliff. And it was amazing. It was beautiful. It was stunning. It was granite. And you get up to the edge, and it's a place where lots of people can do quick day hikes, too. There's, there's lots of foot traffic there. So they had put these metal railings a little bit back from the edge to kind of— it was a fence to protect you from going over the edge into folly. So they had this fence of protection, Right? But as we got a little bit further where most people don't go, we hiked into some other areas where they didn't have a fence, and it was terrifying. You're on top of half, though. I and mean, you're looking over a 5,000-foot vertical drop, and you're just like, your knees start to go weak. and It reminded me of, of backpacking with my son. You know, kids don't have that sense of self-preservation just yet. And I take my son backpacking, and he's bulletproof because he's 18. And so we go backpacking, and I'm yelling at him constantly, like there's a, I'm going to build a a, a figurative fence, son. Don't come within six feet of the edge of the cliff. My son wants to run to the very edge and dangle over like this. It was my heart. So one time we were actually climbing a mountain in Montana, and it was scary. I was struggling with fear a little bit, and I was yelling at my son. I was like, Elijah! You have to keep four points on the ground at all times. He's like... How can I move, Dad? If I had to keep four points on the ground, I can't even lift a hand. I'm like, three points on the ground at all time, and so he was climbing because I was I was building a fence. I was afraid he was going to fall, and and my heart desire was actually good, but in the end, it, it manifests in just utter control. And you stifle things. You're not not addressing anything but the externality of the person. That's what was going on here with the oral law. In their mind, it was a fence that people might not even begin to put themselves in a position where they could defy the law of God. Some believe it began as a noble spiritual movement, but it became a godless legal monstrosity. It created a crushing yoke that was put over the necks of the Jews, the yoke of legalism. They cared solely about this religious externalism. To the exclusion of a person's heart. By the time we see the Pharisees here in our text glaring at Jesus, confronting him, the religious legal complex that they had constructed had become so burdensome and so deadly it far outweighed any deadly sin they had risen up in opposition to. They viewed the oral law as equally binding as Scripture and, in some cases, more important than Scripture. The simple idea was this. If in in the law, the Torah, if priests were required to wash their hands, why shouldn't any and every Jew who wants to be pious, why shouldn't every Jew do the ceremonial washings? And so let's put that burden on the necks of the people. And if washing hands is good in a ceremonial way, why not just wash everything? Why not wash our bodies? Why not wash our pots and our vessels and even our couches that nobody is defiled? And so the burden of the oral tradition, it just became crushing. And it's almost comical to us today. When you begin to, to read a little bit of the stuff that exists in the Mishnah, the Mishnah is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, hundreds of laws. They, they, they sought to add commentary and clarity to the law of God. So, for example, the, the, the command of the Sabbath that you should not work on the Sabbath, you should keep that day holy. They had to work out in a million little details what does it mean to not work on the Sabbath. And so the Mishnah deals with ridiculous things like literally the Mishnah deals with should you or should you not spit on the Sabbath. If you spit on the dirt, it's fine. But if you spit on the dirt and you happen to scuff the dirt with your sandal, you're cultivating the soil and that's work. If your false teeth fall out on the Sabbath, you're gonna have to eat without teeth all day because it's work to pick them up and put them back in your mouth. This is in the Mishnah. They, they wrestle in the Mishnah with whether or not if you have a wooden leg and your house catches on fire, is it work to carry your wooden leg out of the home? This is the ridiculous it's comical to us, right? Because it's like so removed from the way that we even think but this was literally the centerpiece of religious thought of the day. Hundreds and hundreds of pages. And it was concerned a lot with cleanliness, the very issue that the Pharisees are rising today with, with Jesus. Now, now get the deal. These Pharisees say, hey Jesus, we see that your your, your, your disciples aren't you know, participating in the ritual cleansing, they're not concerned about disciples because they never address the disciples again. That was just a way for them to come at Jesus. One of my favorite preachers put it this way. He said, during Jesus's day, the scriptural rituals of purity were so fenced and refenced that the concept of true inner purity had been trivialized to a system of external washings. No attention being paid to the heart. There is this inevitable... Earth shaking collision that was set between Jesus, who was concerned chiefly with real righteousness, and these Pharisees, who concerned themselves only with external righteousness. You could see the collision was going to happen. And so here the Pharisees sit, staring at Jesus with contempt in their heart, looking for any way that could undermine and destroy his ministry. They look through the lens of the oral law. Why do your disciples not wash, they say. And Jesus. So he looks at these men, he recognizes this, this question they asked to, of him. Why, why, do your, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? One commentator put it this way. This was an official question from an official delegation from Jerusalem. These men, these Pharisees, were theological hitmen came who came to nail Jesus. And they were straining and searching with contempt in their heart to find anything they could. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus describes these Pharisees this way. He says to them, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, and yet you swallow a camel. He says to them in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, do you see the sp- you, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. You know how hard it is to see a speck in someone's eye? You know how close you have to be? You know how how thoroughly you have to examine someone to recognize the speck in their eye? These men were scouring every detail of Jesus looking looking for anything they could use against him. And so true to form, the Pharisees see an external problem with defiled hands. Pick up in verse 6. And Jesus said to them, well, did the prophecy... Well, did Isaiah prophesy of, your, of you hypocrites, as it is written quote, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Let's pause there for now. Second thing I would encourage you to write down if you're taking notes today is simply this. Whereas the Pharisees see a problem with defiled hands, Jesus sees a problem with defiled hearts. Whereas the Pharisees are worried about external moralism, Jesus is concerned with internal righteousness. And he uses one of his favorite terms for the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. He uses this term all throughout the Gospels. A hypocrite was not always an insulting term. It was actually a neutral term that was used when speaking of actors, like stage actors. Someone who played a part convincingly was a hypocrite. That word for hypocrite is the Greek word hypokrites. And it could be a compliment to a great actor, Tom Hanks in... A Forrest Gump. You watch him play Forrest Gump. It is so convincing. He won the best actor, I think, for that. He won the Oscar for that role. He is such an incredible actor. You could say Tom Hanks. What an incredible Hippocrates. He is so good at playing a part. It's incredible. But when you see Tom Hanks in Hollywood, or if you bump into him at Walmart, which will probably never happen, but if you did, you don't. You're not going to expect to see Forrest Gump. You're going to see Tom Hanks because you and I recognize he was playing a role on the screen. There was a divorce between the heart of Tom Hanks and the lips of Tom Hanks, the real man versus the pretend man. And it's acceptable when you're an actor and you're on a stage. But Jesus, looking at these, these Pharisees, he calls them Hippocrates. He calls them hypocrites. Their outward spirituality was entirely divorced from their inward condition. They were playing a role in the presence of others, of pious, godly men of the cloth, but their hearts were corrupt and anything but godly. There was a divorce between their heart and their lips. They were actors who were putting on an external show. And even as they viewed the the oral law as being equally binding as Scripture, and even as they honored outwardly the Word of God, even as as they observed these 600-plus laws they 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 had been following according to oral tradition, the core of their lives were rotten. And they were anything but God honoring. And Jesus accurately called them hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, he said. Their heart is far from me. That's that word I told you earlier, that word in in Greek that means the, the spiritual, physical, and moral center of their being was far from God. And so Jesus highlights the fatal flaw of Phariseeism, a preoccupation with external legalism. The, the, the fatal flaw of Phariseeism is a preoccupation with religious externalism. It ignores the heart. And it results in a godlessness that expresses itself as godliness. That's what religious externalism does. You can wear your badges. You can play the rule. You can play the part. You can be a hypocrite. And on the outside, you've got all your stars lined up. But on the inside, you're corrupt. And in the name of being godly, you actually are walking in godlessness. It's the ultimate in self-deception. It's It's dangerous. And he, uh, specifically here in our text, he uses one example to, to kind of highlight how this is manifested within the culture. And he talks about this thing called Corbin. Look with me at verses 10 through 13. Jesus says, For Moses said, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, Pharisee, if a man tells his father or mother whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So every Jew understood the Ten Commandments. Every Jew understood the command of God to honor one's father and mother. And they knew, especially in this context, when their parents aged and they weren't able to care for themselves, it was a responsibility of their children to care for their parents. The oral law that the Pharisees are now upholding, however, is providing a loophole to the very command of God. It was Corban. So Corban was an oath. It was to say, it was to make an oath or a vow that I'm going to give what I have. I'm going to give my resources to God. And what's very likely happening here is this. What's very likely happening is that there were young, zealous uh, Jews who wanted to honor God with their lives. And so they said at some point in their life, in the presence of the Pharisees, I want to give my resources to God. I want to see the name of God made great. great." And they maybe said that in haste, maybe said that in ignorance, but they made the oath. And so the Pharisees say that's binding. Fast forward 15 years. The, the youthful person that said that now has aging parents who have fallen ill. It's a huge financial burden. They need to care for their parents. They need help in caring for their parents. So these people come back to the Pharisees. They say, hey, I've, I've vowed my resource to the temple, but I, I'm unable to fulfill the, the fifth commandment by honoring my father and mother because I don't have the resources to do it. Can I amend that? And they would say, nope. That is a vow that you've made. That money belongs to the temple. Therefore, that money belongs to us. This is just one of many examples that Jesus points out, how the the oral law of these Pharisees purposely was so twisted that it was, in in, in one-for-one comparison, it was causing people to abandon the very basic commandments of what it meant to follow God. And I'm just, again, reminded of the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew as he he speaks condemnation over this group of men. He says, you blind Pharisee, in Matthew 23. You blind Pharisee, first you clean the inside of the cup and then the plate— That the outside may be clean. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And I look at that historical context of the Pharisees, and I and I'm looking at the context within which we live today. How might we be tempted with religious externalism today? Certainly it's not the same as then. We live in a different culture. It's a different time. But we're still a a, a community of people seeking to to honor and pursue relationship with God. And so so how, how are we tempted to get engaged with religious externalism today? I think about just you know, kind of church conversation that I find myself getting caught up up in sometimes. Sometimes when I'm talking to people, it's easier to kind of just to talk about the business of church and not talk about Jesus. It's easy to talk about the things I'm doing for God rather than what's happening in my heart and what it looks like for me trying to be a man of God. I get caught up in that. I was chatting with our staff earlier this week and I was talking about how hard it's been, how devastating it's been to see, as we see over and over, as we have for centuries, uh, men who are wickedly gifted men who are gifted orators who lead huge religious movements who, who speak with a silver tongue who, who, who proclaim the doctrines of God with clarity and then we find out behind closed doors they are wicked vile corrupt men it's so hard for me to to square that I look at Ravi Zacharias, for example. I look at his ministry. I don't care how many times, uh, dozens of times over the years, I've, I've watched sermons or messages or conference conferences of Ravi Zacharias, watching his question and answers where he crushes the atheist and all this stuff on YouTube. And, and it's so good. I've shared it with people. I've read some of his material. And then to find out that behind closed doors, this man was vile. He was corrupt. It's so hard for me to square that. And I think in our day, that's where we get caught up in this tricky nature of religious externalism. We love to line up behind the gifted, godly leader who's got a movement behind his name. It's appealing to us because we're on the inside. We're following the gifted guy. We love awesome websites, amazing communication, awesome branding, uh, music that is musically excellent, questionably qu- questionable when it comes to the lyrics. We line up behind, we just like the men of those days, but in a different way. We are just as tempted with religious externalism, aren't we? I think in my last church I was in, and I remember we, we wanted to rebrand our church. And I'm not throwing my old church under the bus, but I remember we spent $70,000 to create a new brand. And I thought, what could $70,000 do to make disciples? Again, I don't mean to throw my church under the bus. I just I struggled with that. This week, when, when you gather in your huddle groups, when it comes to our huddle group curriculum, Pastor Jeremy has crafted some questions that are going to allow us to talk about this. One of the questions he asks, he says, the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of being ceremonially unclean, and Jesus responds to the Pharisees by quoting the prophet Isaiah. He tells them that they honor God with their lips, but not with their hearts. But here's the question. Jesus, or, Jeremy asks the huddle groups at Heritage, without naming names, what are examples in southern Oregon where we see people honor God with their lips, but not with their hearts? And I want to add an addendum. When you answer that question, I would encourage you to look inward first. What are ways in your life you're tempted to honor God with your lips but not with your heart? It's easy for us to keep our conversations and relationships external, isn't it? It's so hard to be authentic and real and transparent. It's so hard. It's just so much easier to stay on the surface level. But, but, but we should not, we cannot, we have to fight against defaulting to religious externalism. We have to. It's the cancer of community. It's a cancer of authentic relationship. In the church, where there are other professing believers, it's easy to fall into the trap of focusing our discussions on outward practices, but can we not do that? Can we not do that? One of the reasons we have women's studies and men's studies and huddle groups and what we generically call here at Heritage Discipleship Communities is so that we can create space and place where there can be an honest, living life together. An honest confession and repentance, and sharpening one another, that we don't fall into this externalism, but that we are concerned chiefly with the hearts of one another, on inward transformation in the presence of God. I think this is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew six, in the Sermon on the Mount, when He's teaching on prayer. He he, he, both he attacks the Pharisees, but then he holds up a standard for His true disciples in in Matthew six verses five and six. Jesus says, when you pray, he says this to his disciples. These are at the, this is the Sermon on the Mount. He, he's kind of teaching what life is like in his kingdom. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand up and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Religious hypocrites love religious externalism. It's absolutely gross to God. Verse 6, but Jesus says to his true disciple, when you pray, disciple, go into your room. Shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus taught us not that all public prayer is bad, by the way. This isn't prescription of everything, but Jesus is getting to a heart issue here. When he teaches us to go into our closet and pray, what he is saying, he's saying when you come before God, shut out every other consideration. Simply come before God as the man and the woman who you authentically are and be in his presence. That's all that matters. Bring your heart before God as laid open and as transparent and as honestly as you possibly can. That's all that matters. And on the last day, by the way, that's all that's going to count. Because there will be a day that we stand in the presence of Jesus face to face. And in Matthew 7, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, On that day, when people stand in my presence, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Lord, Lord, did we not practice religious externalism? Then I will say to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, for your worker you are workers of lawlessness. So for those of us in the church today, we profess the authority of Scripture with our lips, and we need to live it in our hearts. To be a disciple of Jesus is not about externalism. It's so tempting, and it's so tempting in church ministry. I've been in church ministry for 20 years. It is so tempting because, because, because it works for a certain degree to just create programs and structures and boxes that you can check. If I kept our church busy uh, uh, seven days a week doing religious outward activities... And just staying religious and active where you could check your boxes and you could convince yourself by doing religious externalism that you're walking in the will of God, never addressing the issues of your heart. We could keep you busy all day long, but there would be no fruit in that. It's so tempting to do that because it creates the illusion of forward movement. But we should not be concerning ourselves with religious externalism. We ought to be concerning ourselves as disciples of Jesus with, am I being shaped and formed into the image of Jesus? And that is a heart issue. And you probably recognize the elevation of language over the last year here at Heritage. We want to be a church that is dedicated, a gospel centered church dedicated to making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. What is a disciple? We've defined it with very intentional language, trying to pay attention to the heart condition of man. We believe a disciple is someone who primarily has faith in Jesus. They've been born again, they have a new heart, they have faith in Jesus. They are being shaped and formed into the likeness of Jesus at the heart level. And then they're learning to lead others to follow Jesus. That's what a disciple is. And even next week, Pastor Aaron is going to introduce to you something Jeremy talked about this summer, this tool that we have created for our church to help you think very deeply about the condition of your heart. It's a discipleship tool. We're going to walk you through how to use that next week. But the eight core values we think belong in the life of a disciple are contained in that tool. We believe that a disciple, at a heart level, has a willing submission to God. We believe that a disciple at a heart level has a godly character. In other words, they, 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 they recognize the need to be before they do. A disciple has authentic relationships marked by love. Their, their stewardship is God-glorifying. They have a Christ-centered emotional health. They are living a missional lifestyle where Christ is exalted and not them. They, they, they hold to, to gospel purity and mature doctrine, and their worship is authentic, and it's marked by relationship. And we have a, we have a, we have a tool that's going to help us as a church pay deep attention to how we are growing as disciples at the heart level. And so, Jesus, he sees a problem with the filed hands, and he sees a problem. And the Pharisees, rather, see a problem with the filed hands, and Jesus sees a problem with the filed hearts. And that takes us to, to verse 14 here in Mark chapter 7. And our last point. And he called the people to him again, Jesus. And he said to them, Hear me all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Let's pause there. Some manuscripts have verse 16. You probably, if you have the ESV, you probably don't have verse 16 in your Bible because it's a questionable verse because it's not in all manuscripts. The verse simply reads, if you have it in your Bible, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Here's the third thing I would encourage you to write down. Jesus reveals the source of true defilement. Here Jesus reveals the source of true defilement. The disciples are concerned, or the, the Pharisees are concerned with, with defiled hands. Jesus is chiefly concerned with defiled hearts and how Jesus kind of helps to, us to understand where does defilement really come from. It doesn't come from without, He says it comes from within. Dr. Vincent Taylor, who wrote a book called The Gospel According to St. Mark, here's what he says about the context in which Jesus said these these things. He said, In laying down the principle that uncleanliness comes from within and not from without, Jesus' pronouncement uh, uh, stated a truth that was radically contrary to the the contemporary Judaistic beliefs of the day. This was a, a radical teaching. That, that, that true righteousness was not an external thing, but an internal thing. And what he did was he, he destined Christianity to be free of the bondage of legalism. Theologian William Barclay said in all of Scripture, this is the most revolutionary passage. This is the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. It's hard for us to understand how, how, how bizarre this would have been to the hearers of the day who were raised in a tradition of religious externalism. It would have been mind-blowing to them. So much so that the the disciples, when they got Jesus alone in verse 17, they assumed it was a parable. They they assumed he wasn't actually speaking direct. They thought he was speaking in some sort of double talk, using an illustration. Because in their mind, they couldn't fathom that true spirituality was an internal thing and not an external thing. Look at verse 17. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. It's not a parable. Verse, Verse 18. And he said to them, Then are you not also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus reveals the true heart condition of human beings apart from him. Ugly words, ugly words. We see the fruit of our hearts everywhere when we look at the world in which we live one glance at the world all we see is sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness this is the fruit of the human heart and it's not just out there in the world the truth is when we look deep within our own hearts we see the tendency and the propensity within each and every one of us to have those same things We live in a time that tells us to follow our heart, and I say, oh my God, may we not follow our heart. It is evil. The Pharisees masked their evil with religious externalism. They were smart enough to be disingenuous, to divorce the reality of their hearts from the expression of their religion. But when you get outside of religious communities, we in the religious communities have done a really good job of putting masks on. It's very easy for us to, to wear a mask or a facade of religious externalism and never be honest about the condition of our hearts. But once you get outside religious communities, once you get outside the church, the world doesn't concern themselves with this. And it's really interesting. I was sharing this with some of the staff this week. It's interesting to me about how our world or our culture has decided to sanctify these evil sins. They're like, they are values of the culture. Our, our, our culture celebrates the evil of the heart, encourages and normalizes these activities. Just let me just share a few. Let me share with you five of these, these these words that Jesus used to describe the heart. He talks about how the fruit of the heart is sexual immorality. That Greek word is pornea. That's where you get the word pornography. And it means literally illicit sexual intercourse. It means perversion. Our culture celebrates pornea. It's a part of our it's a value in our culture. I mean you look at the the statistics of, of of pornography and websites and the way in which that is being used on the regular inside the church and out it's staggering. The another word is is murder that word faunas it means it literally means slaughter and we think, ah yeah, we have you know we have all these murder every city in America right now has the all-time highest murder rates they've ever seen, and I'm, I'm watching this, nude, this news in America. It's pretty staggering how, how violent the streets in America have become, but I'm also, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't escape me that we just had the 49th March for Life and that in the name of convenience and justice and female empowerment and independence and in the name of prosperity, we have sanctified the slaughter of millions of unborn children. Murder. Slaughter the value of our culture. We shout our abortions with pride now. The word wickedness, it means depravity, malice, evil purpose, and evil desire. The word sensuality, it's a long Greek word, but it means unbridled lusts, excesses, licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence. Man, when I look at the sexual ethic of our world today, it is sensuality, it is unbridled lusts, it is excesses, it is outrageous shamelessness that is celebrated on every corner. We've normalized it. The word pride, that means the character of one who with a swollen estimation of his own powers or merits looks down on others and treats them with insolence and contempt. When I look at the political landscape of our country, Both from political officials and just everyday Americans, there is a swollen estimate of one's own power and merits, and we are very good at looking down and treating others with insolence and contempt if they happen to fall on the wrong side of the political spectrum. So, the picture that's being painted here is a pretty bleak picture. Apart from God's intervention, this is the human heart condition. God spoke of the human heart through the prophet Jeremiah, verse 17, verse 9, when he said, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The psalmist had it right in Psalm 14 when he writes, they have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul had it right in Romans chapter 3 when he quoted the psalmist and he said, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The prophet Isaiah had it right when he looked forward to the time of Jesus and he said, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, everyone to his own way. Religious externalism fails miserably to get to get to the core of our evil hearts. And so to the question I asked at the very beginning of my message today, is the human heart fundamentally good or fundamentally evil? The scripture is abundantly clear. The human heart is hopelessly and fundamentally evil apart from the intervention of God. Our hearts are totally depraved and they are entirely defiled. Pastor Jeremy this week said that there is no religious way to get to the heart of a person. You cannot provide a topical treatment to rot and to cancer. Every world religion, if you boil it down at its core, apart from Christianity, every world religion at its core is a form of religious externalism. Every world religion at one day or another boils down to applying topical religion to the cancer of sin that is deep beneath the surface. And so the hope is... The answer is a spirituality of the heart. That is our only hope. A spirituality of the heart is the only hope that will address our heart condition. That's exactly why Christ came. It's exactly what he came to establish. The text doesn't give us the answer. Jesus just lets us hang with his disciples. The heart is evil, it's morally corrupt, and then he's done. But as we look at the broader of Scripture, we know that Jesus came to give us a new heart. God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 35, verse 26 and 27. Here's what God says. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What's the answer? The answer is we need a new heart. We need a heart transplant. Only God can do that. The Apostle Paul, in, in the letter to the Ephesians, he said, uh, "You were dead in your trespasses and sins," he says in Isaiah or in Ephesians chapter two. He says, "But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in trans- transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved." This theological word here is regeneration. God, by the power of His spirit, regenerates us. It is a new birth. That's what Jesus came to accomplish, a new birth, a holy and heavenly birth that results in you and me being made alive spiritually. Our stony, stubborn hearts are forever taken out, and God gives us a tender, responsive heart upon which his law is written. In our natural state, we are dead to our trespasses and to our sins, but we are made alive in Christ. That's what Jesus meant when he was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, when he said, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so what we do is we grab that tube of toothpaste, it's all crumpled and ugly, and we try to apply topical solutions. If I'm more moral, if I'm more externally religious, if I do more stuff, if I try harder, if I try to put good stuff in the tube of toothpaste, it's it's never going to work. We need a new tube. We need a new heart. We need new everything. And only God can give us a heart transplant. That's only a work of the gospel. We need new contents. And it's only through Christ that we're born again. Only through Jesus can you and I have a new heart. And only through Jesus can we have his law placed within us. Only God can remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Only God can put his spirit within you. And so for those of us here who are in Christ, my guess is that you feel the tension between the truth you know about God and the new heart that he has given you in Christ and the realized experience of the sinful tendencies that still dwell within you at times. I'm reminded of when Jesus was talking to the disciples on the night when he was betrayed and, and they kept falling asleep, and he said in Matthew 26, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So a lot of us live in this reality of a willing spirit, but a weak flesh. And I think about how can you and I, on a very practical level, begin to pay attention to the condition of our heart? And there's lots of things, right? Lots of things. But one practice, as I thought about it this week, that I think is one of, the, one of the cancers to our society is the cancer of busyness. We have so many things that occupy so much of our time and I was even thinking about the way in which uh, streaming services have built into their, into their services a recycling nature. When a show is done, the next one pops up. You don't have to push play. It just can pop it up, pop up, pop up. You can continue to scroll, and it never ends, and we can live ever-distracted, ever-busy lives where we never pay attention to the condition of our heart. We never come before God. And I think of the role of these disciplines of abstinence, of silence and solitude and stillness, and I wonder what it would look like if the people of God... Carved out time in their lives, regular time, disciplined time in our lives, to not go just indulge, but to go honestly consider the condition of our heart, to come before God, to come to God and say, God, my spirit, your spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. And so I'm going to expose my heart to you, God, that by your spirit, as I surrender and submit myself anew to you on this day, you would enliven my heart with your will, that I could walk in your ways. That you would give my heart this kind of renewal that I so desperately need because left to my own devices, I'm going to gravitate back to the sin nature that just so, I'm so used to. So I wonder what it would look like for us as his church to come honestly and authentically before him. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of King David. And I want to finish with the, the, the 51st Psalm. You know the story of King David, a, very, a man who was all about religious externality. He religious externalism. King was the king of of Israel. He had everything you could want on the outside, but his heart was corrupt. It led him to sin with Bathsheba, a gross, gross sexual sin that ended up in the death of Uriah. And as as David came to, to terms with the corruption of his own heart, he came before God in a very broken way. And we see in his prayer before God, this reality of our hearts, it's only in and through the work of God that we have any hope. So as I pray, I'm simply gonna pray the 51st Psalm over you and over me. Would you pray with me? Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out our transgressions. God, would you wash us thoroughly from our iniquity, cleanse us from our sin. God, we know our transgressions and our sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have we sinned, and we've done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, Father, we were brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did our mothers conceive us. Behold, God, you delight in truth, in the inward being. And you teach us wisdom in the secret heart. God, purge us with hyssop, and we shall be clean. Wash us, and we shall be whiter than snow. God, would you allow us to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God, hide your face from our sins. Blot out all of our iniquities. Create in us a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from us. God, restore unto us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. God, we will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. God, deliver us from blood guiltness, O God of our salvation. And our tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open our lips and our mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or we would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering or a religious externalism. God, the sacrifices you desire are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. In Jesus' name, amen.